There was um, an edition of Leadership Magazine a few years ago, actually it was about four years ago. It referred to a book entitled Fame Attack. And uh, the professor who wrote that explores how we have turned celebrities into modern-day idols. Some of us have turned celebrities into modern-day idols. Uh, modern fans covet autographs, letters, check stubs, locks of hair, clothes, combs, glasses, cigarette butts, rings, cars, and other celebrity accessories. And here are some examples. A jar containing the exhaled breath of Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie was recently bought by a fan for $500. <laughs> a piece of bubblegum chewed by Britney Spears sold for $160. In 2011, a lock of pop star Justin Bieber's hair sold on eBay for $40,000. 668. Now that would be Canadian stock, right? Justin Bieber. And in 2002, the former barber of Elvis Presley sold a clump of Elvis's hair for $115,000. Well, we think it's pretty funny, I th I, you know. But how do you explain it? And uh, anyway, this person giving examples, he was talking about celebrities being turned into modern-day idols. Tim Keller wrote a very helpful book entitled Counterfeit Gods. And he says that the human heart is an idol factory. And anything can serve as a counterfeit god. I think that helps to explain that phenomenon and uh, sometimes these extreme things, they kind of draw attention to something that is more common than we realize. But what is the answer to that reality that anything can serve as a counterfeit God? Let's look at Jesus' answer to the expert in the Old Testament, expert in Old Testament studies who tests him with the question, which is the greatest commandment. Let's read from uh, Matthew 22, and uh, starting at verse 34. And, uh, you know, I think for... Why don't we stand and we'll say these words together, starting at verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together... One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Thank you. Please be seated. All the laws and the commandments hang on these two commandments. Which is the greatest commandment? 
the Jews quite commonly drew distinctions among the laws within Scripture, seeing them as great and small, light and heavy. And uh, they assumed that not every regulation was seen as equally important. And uh, it seems that Jesus accepted that assumption. And so their assumption being that there must be a single command that is more important than the others. And Jesus agreed. And he said that it's that law of love that puts it all together. Love God with all of your being and uh, love your neighbor as yourself. As a door hangs on its hinges, so the whole Old Testament hangs on these two commandments. And all the other precepts and instructions in the Old Testament are ways in which these two fundamental principles find expression. And without love, all the covenant regulations and the standards and the commands, uh, they're not being fulfilled. It's that simple. That's the way it is in the Old Testament. That's the way Jesus interpreted it. It's the way it is in the, New Test- in the epistles as well. Listen to Colossians 3.14, where the Apostle Paul, after listing such things as compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and forgiveness, then he goes on to say, and over all these virtues, over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Love, he says, is what pulls it all together. Love for God, love for neighbor. And you know, that's a summary of it. And uh, I suggest that everything we hope to accomplish in a church must somehow relate to love for God and or love for neighbor. And I would say that there's a sense in which the great commandment even precedes the great commission because the great commission comes out of love. God so loved the world and we to love the world by presenting the gospel. But foundational to all of it is love for God and neighbor. And everything we do, really, worship, it's an expression of love for God. Fellowship, it's a way of loving one another. Outreach, it's a way of loving the people in the world. And the outcome being, as we do church together, the outcome really ought to be an increase of love for God and love for people. And uh, I was thinking of that as, as, I realize, as you realize I'm sort of today beginning my role officially as a part-time transition pastor. And I thought I should say something about, about my sense of purpose and my sense of vision. And it really is this. I believe that as a, a leader in the church, and I believe that other leaders in the church, our responsibility is to somehow lead church in such a way that there is an increase of love for God and others. Increase in that those who are already committed will, will do so more and more. And an increase in that there are more people worshiping, loving God and loving one another. And uh, I agree with the well-known American the- theological ethicist of the 20th century, Richard Niebuhr, when he said or defined the purpose of the church as the increase of the love of God and neighbor. 
That's why we're here. We want somehow the love for God to be increased. We want somehow that the love for others be increased. And so let's, let's go for it. Let's make that our goal as we continue to do church together. Well, out of that, then I want to talk about the Great Commandment. And uh, today I want to talk about love for God. Next week, Lord willing, love for neighbor. And then probably the week after that, something special about our love for one another. But beginning then with love for God. And I want to say three things about that today. First, it's the priority. It's the first priority. Second, it's to be an integrated love. And thirdly, it's interdependent with love for neighbor. And, uh, but beginning with the first priority, somehow love for God has to come first. A number of years ago, we did the 40 Days of Purpose in one of the churches that I served. And uh, it's Rick Warren who has put the curriculum together. And in his book related to that, I like the way it begins. Uh, love has to be first. He, he begins with a chapter entitled, It All Starts with God. And then he goes on to say, as he begins the, 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 what's inside the book, it's not about you. <laughs> what, what a statement. It's so obvious, but what a relevant statement to make. It's not about you. You must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. Love for God has to be first. And here, I'm not talking about sequence necessarily, but in logical priority. Uh, sequence is a little different. We, we, we understand love by loving neighbor, right? Or being loved by neighbor. And so that might be the chronological sequence. But in terms of priority, love for God comes first. He, th- th- there's really only uh, two entities in this whole universe. It's God and everything else. And everything else was created. He created us, not we Him. We exist for His glory, not He for ours. We are His servants, not He ours. And we are accountable to Him. He's not accountable to us. And consistent with this, as you read the Ten Commandments, what is the very first commandment? It is that I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. And that's also the way it is with the Lord's Prayer. It doesn't begin with our needs, but it begins with God. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All of those things first. And then give us this day our daily bread. Idolatry is when we take that which is created and we put it in the place of the creator. It is devotion to the made rather than to the maker. And Romans describes it. In, it's so clear there how it's an exchange, how idolatry is an exchange of places. Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. 
Tim Keller, in the book I referred to, or in some of, perhaps, other of his writing, he says that there were two Jewish philosophers who knew the scriptures intimately, and they concluded the central principle of the Bible, the central principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. But where, where there's idolatry, our system is upside down. We attempt to reverse the roles, reversing our respective identities, making everything revolve around us, making him the servant, our needs and our happiness uppermost. But that makes him out to be less than God. Now, having said all that, I think it's very important that to note that to love God first does not mean minimizing our own lives. It's not like saying we don't matter, but rather when we give him first priority, then our own lives are also at best. It's like then we're aligned properly and we're firing on all cylinders. And it's like Jesus said in Matthew 6:33, seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. God has to be first, first priority, and that is only giving him his rightful place. Second thing I note about loving God first, or loving God, is that it's to be an integrated love. It's to be a love that comes from our whole persons, integrated in the sense that everything is pulled together into one purpose. And in this uh, passage in Matthew, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament Shema, which began like this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then, love the Lord your God with all your, your heart, your soul, and with all of your strength. Integration of the person there. And biblically, these, these different parts, heart, soul, and mind, they, they were looked upon as overlapping categories. They, didn't necessarily, they weren't necessarily isolated, but they were overlapping. And so together, they demand love of God from the whole person. But then also, it includes strength in the, in the Old Testament. And Mark's rendition, he includes strength, that you are to love him, also my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that would include the body as well. Love him with your inner person. Love him with the outer person. A unified, integrated person. All of me in unity, committed to this. Not just believing in him with my mind. Not just feeling warmed or being enthused about him as with my feelings. But my mind and my will. That the will being the decisive part of me. And then of course serving him with our bodies. I wonder, and we can only, we can only speculate, but I, I wonder if sometimes when people seem to make such sincere commitments to follow, follow the Lord, but there doesn't seem to be that follow-through. I wonder, could it have something to do with the whole person not really being into it? You know, I'm impressed with my emotions, or it makes sense to me, or I'd like, I like the action, but somehow the whole person is committed and then, it, and then it doesn't last. Like I say, we can only, we can only speculate. But listen to David's prayer that we read earlier this morning. 
where he expresses an integrated commitment or a desire for an integrated commitment to the Lord. He says in Psalm 86, 11 and 12, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk. Interesting. Teach me. That would be the mind. And I will walk. That would be the body, the, the truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. Where there is integration, you avoid compartmentalizing so that, you know, the faith just becomes another part of your life, you know, like a piece of pie. There's the faith part and there's the uh, marriage part and there's the work part. Uh, not the right way of looking at it. But when it's an integrated faith, it, it's, it's all together. And uh, Jesus is Lord in all of it. Uh, New York, uh, the New York Times asked the founder of McDonald's what he believed in. And he said, God, my family, and McDonald's hamburgers. But then he added, but when I get to the office, I reverse the three. It was Chuck Colson who included that, and this is what he says about that. He, he says his apparently facetious comment marks an ironic truth for many Christians. God has first priority on Sunday mornings. But life goes on as usual the rest of the week. Our religious experience is considered private, affecting inner feelings perhaps, but not outward actions. But when I love God in an integrated way, with my mind, my soul, my spirit, my body, with all my strength, then I take my faith with me into all of life. I don't park it outside the door of my workplace or leave it at home when I attend an Eskimo, an Eskimo game. And, uh, and, of course, I have to work at that. <laughs> You know, I'm committed to that, but it doesn't mean that I'm always able to be consistent. I forget that Christ is Lord even now as I'm maybe arguing with somebody, uh, but that's part of the growth, to be committed to that, that Christ is part of all of my life. It's an integrated life. Colossians 3.17 And whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When I love God with an integrated love, I try to see all of my situations through the, the lens of the value system that I have developed over a period of time through the teaching of God's word. I try to see life through the lens and approach life through the lens of that Christian value system. And this relates, I suggest today, and I think that makes it pretty relevant, uh, that it relates to the freedom of, of conscience that we seek for the medical workers in Ontario. I mentioned that last week, how uh, that uh, there's a law there that they cannot follow their conscience when it comes to making referrals to those who, uh, who want to help you know, with uh, assisted dying. We have to bring 
it into all of life. There was a saying that was very familiar years ago. I haven't heard it lately. But the saying was simply this, if Jesus is Lord, then nothing is secular. Remember that? If Jesus is Lord, nothing is secular. Boy, some of those monks, I, you know, I, I, I keep hearing about Brother Andrew. I didn't read anything about Brother Andrew, but I keep reading, hearing uh, references to that and how that this person was able to sense that he was serving the Lord as he was cleaning pots and pans and working in the kitchen. That's right. Jesus is Lord. Then nothing is secular. Love for God. It's to be first priority. It's to be an integrated. But then briefly, there's an interdependence between love for God and love for one another. It's interesting here that the expert in the law asks for the greatest commandment and Jesus answers by bringing the two together. It's to love God with everything. And the other one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. It's like he didn't say that these are two separate ones, but somehow they're really bound together. And they relate together both ways. They really stand together. Even though, as I've been stressing, uh, love for God is logically first in priority, uh, and yet you cannot really truly love God without love for neighbor. The test of whether we really love God is actually found right there. First uh, John chapter 4, verse 21, and he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. But the other is also true. You cannot fully and completely and uh, to full potential love your neighbor as you could or as you should without love for God. Because if I'm going to love others as I should, I must be surrendered in my will to God and my love for others both subordinate and regulated by my love for God. I think of Eli in the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, you can read it for yourself in chapter 2, starting at verse 12, and it goes right on into chapter 3. Uh, but in the account, we see that Eli was a priest in the temple. His sons were also priests. And the text tells us that they were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. And uh, it said that this sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. And then there's this word of how God had spoken to him. I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible, and he failed to restrain them. He failed to restrain them. He loved them in a way that really wasn't a surrendered type of uh, love to God first. And here's the clear crux of the matter in chapter 2, verse 29. The question, why did you honor your sons more than me? In his relationship with them, God was not first. And I'm saying that to be able to love my neighbor in the best possible way, it comes from loving God first. 
And so it isn't a matter. And, and for him then, it became like a form of idolatry. He was honoring his sons. He was loving them in a way that should have been reserved for God alone, a form of idolatry. It wasn't a matter of loving them too much, but it was a matter of loving them improperly. And so it is with all of us. It doesn't mean that we will love others any less, but because our love for them is regulated by a prior love for God, we will love our spouses, we will love our children, we will love our neighbors in a purer way, in a better way, remembering always that God is first. The basic meaning of idolatry is devotion to what has been made rather than the maker, what is created rather than the creator. And closer to home, easy to sort of capture uh, Descriptions or definitions of idolatry uh, from Keller. He says, idolatry is when good things become ultimate things. Isn't that good? Idolatry is when good things become ultimate things. And that anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life, as setting of the whole heart on something besides God. The celebrity obsession we started with, a lock of Justin Bieber's hair, $40,000, piece of bubble gum chewed by Britney Spears, sold for 160, foolish. But of course, it's not part of our world. That's not where the danger is. It's not going to happen to us. And if any of you are involved in that, it won't be because you have such a high regard for that. It's because you say, well, boy, there's a stock that is going to go up in value. <laughs> you know. But closer to home, the kinds of temptations that we deal with would be things like ambition, power, materialism, greed. Keller says that some years ago he was doing a part, part, uh, doing a seven-part series uh, of talks on the seven deadly sins, and his wife Kathy told him, "I'll bet the week you deal with greed, you will have your lowest attendance." <clears throat> and she was right. People packed it out for lust and wrath, and even for pride, but nobody thinks they are greedy. As a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin, almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and people around me. And he goes on to say, greed hides itself from the victim. The money God's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart. I think it's probably true of all our sins. Blindness, blindness. And consistent with that, he says that contemporary observers have often noted that modern-day Christians are just as materialistic as everyone else in our culture. So watch out for that. You know, you're not going to be obsessed about somebody else's bubble gum. <laughs> but greed is subtle. Colossians 3.5, Paul wrote that greed is not just bad behavior, but that it's idolatry. 
He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, is what he says. As I move to a close, I want to remind us that any idol will ultimately let us down. You know, I was thinking of that as we sang Faithful One, you know. He is the one, he's the only one who doesn't let us down. We worship money, worship our careers, worship our children, uh, worship our country, whatever. Ultimately, it can't handle it. It can't really be our God. It'll let us down. He is the only one that we can love, worship, serve in, in a way that doesn't let us down. And what is wonderful for us living in this church age that we worship and serve God in Trinity. God Father, God Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And for us, we can worship God by submitting day by day to Jesus Christ as Lord. You know, we don't carry the encouragement, the high, the strong intentions that we might get at a good worship service into the rest of the week necessarily. But what we, what we can do in the rest of the week is in a practical, helpful, dedicated way serve Jesus Christ as Lord in the way we fulfill our responsibilities. If Christ is Lord, nothing is secular.